When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This is the art of charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. Jordan Harbinger here from the art of charm. Today we're talking with Dacher Keltner, professor at Berkeley and one of the world's foremost scientists who specialize in the study of power and author of The Power Paradox. Today we'll discuss why the imbalance of power is one of the greatest threats to society aside from climate change, how we can increase our power relative to others in a healthy way, something called the power paradox and how this affects us and affects our society at large, and powerlessness and how this can literally be lethal. A lot of great concepts here and very much in line with the AOC core concepts. So enjoy this one with Dacher Keltner. And with that, welcome to The Art of Charm. We bring together the best thought leaders, teachers, and exceptional individuals to teach you how to be a top performer in life, love, and at work. If you're new to the show, we'd love to send you some top episodes and the toolbox where we discuss things like body language, nonverbal communication, persuasion, networking, negotiation, and everything else we teach here at AOC, at our live programs here in LA. In the US, just text CHARMED to 33444, that's C-H-A-R-M-E-D, to 33444, or go to theartofcharm.com. We may not have all the answers, but we definitely have all the right questions. All right, let's talk to Dacher Keltner. Thanks for coming in today, I appreciate it. It's great to be with you, Jordan. You're the author of The Power Paradox. I've read that, it was fantastic. It was kind of something a little unexpected in that it's not, I don't want to say an academic look at power, but it's certainly, you've taken more of a careful look at power than most people who even write about power. It's not just look people in the eye when you shake hands and you'll get power. And it's not these little techniques and and tricks, but it's a real study. Well, first of all, tell us what you do in one sentence. Sure. And we'll dive into the rest. Yeah, I'm a professor of psychology at UC Berkeley and run a big lab that studies power and the evolution of human goodness. In the book, The Power Paradox, what is the power paradox? The power paradox is what I think is one of the most important laws of human behavior. And it's this really interesting irony, which is that people get power by advancing the interests of other people, be it in a school or at work. And then the paradox begins, which is once you feel powerful, you lose all the skills that advance the interests of others and got you power in the first place. But people don't necessarily advance the interests of others to gain power on purpose most of the time, right? It's not purely altruistic, but also it's not like, hmm, if I help enough people, <laughs> I can eventually screw all those people over. <laughs> well, there's a little bit of that going on. And there's this funny literature called competitive altruism where that may be at play. But no, you know, what scientists have discovered who have studied how we get power in different kinds of social groups is really aligning with what you're saying, Jordan, which is that 
we have a lot of different kinds of social behaviors that advance other people's welfare and their interests, right? We give them resources, we share, we cooperate, we collaborate. And as a result of those tendencies, groups will elevate your social status, right? Because you're good for the group. So it's a, a consequence of these pro-social tendencies. So power is given to you. It's not taken because you're so altruistic that you decide to grab it with an iron <laughs> fist. It's not Machiavelli. Yeah. There are so many myths of power out in our culture. And one of them, in fact, I think one of the most pernicious is the one you just outlined, which is the idea that you just go grab power. And yeah, that happens in Mexican drug cartels <laughs> and in little areas of hot spots in Africa and the like. But most of the time, you don't go grab power if you join a workforce or sure. you know you, you enter into a community. It's given to you by the collectives that you join. So is it the same thing as influence? Because I'm thinking of yeah. power, for example, online or influence online kind of translates to power. Maybe it's not the same thing. Yeah, thanks for pointing that out. In fact, I think that's one of the most important statements that I try to make in the power paradox, which is that, you know, when you ask the average American or average industrialized individual, what's power, right? They're going to tell you power is money, power is military might, power is how big you are, power is force. But in point of fact, when you look at history, right, and you think about all the ways in which we influence the world, be it through a blog or a mm -hmm. podcast or a scientific discovery or a great book or rock and roll song, power is your influence on others. And often it's independent of money. It's independent of military might. It's really what we're doing day to day in influencing others. So how does Machiavelli fit in? He's kind of the OG power <laughs> scientist, right? He probably wouldn't have been at Berkeley, but... Yeah, he would have had a short career at Berkeley. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, we've had our Machiavellians. Well, you know, Machiavelli figures profoundly in our thinking about power. In fact, most analyses, if you look at like how influential books are, and books are profoundly influential, sure. the Bible, the Analects of Confucius, Machiavelli's in the top 20, right? His the book, The Prince. And people know what Machiavellianism is. Even if they haven't read the book, they know what it is. Yeah, likely. yeah. And you know, so power is, in Machiavelli's view, force, manipulation, deception, mm -hmm. strategic ruthlessness. And a lot of people think that that's what power is, but the new social science really kind of disconfirms that idea. And it makes us remember Machiavelli wrote in a period in human history, which was probably as violent as any time in human history, when politics were really brothers killing brothers right. and very little rule of law. There was torture was commonplace. So it was a, a philosophy of power that fit that time mm -hmm. and certain subcultures today. But, you know, when you look outside, it doesn't work as well as we think. Right. We don't stand for it as a society or as a civilization in general, Western civilization anyways. Yeah. Do you think that's changed? Do you think power is constantly evolving and what it actually means, given maybe the context, the society, the uh, type of civilization? It just changes. Yeah. What a terrific observation. And the human mind and as social scientists, we like things to be stable and fixed. Mm -hmm. But there's no more dynamic property of human relations than power, right? And we ebb and flow. There are studies showing from the past 40 to 50 years that power has really shown this dramatic shift from being hierarchical and more top-down to what's right outside here in New Silicon Valley, which is it's more horizontal and it's bi-directional and it's distributed. Power is shifting all the time. We're worried today in world politics about a little soft rise of fascism, yes. right? Wow, you know, 
Look what happened in France and Austria and maybe Donald Trump is this reappearance of one kind of power we thought we were done with. Right. So power's always shifting, as you yeah. say, Gordon. We get power now in this current incarnation of society or civilization yeah. for now, depending on when you're watching this, right? <laughs> we get power by improving the lives of others in our network. Yeah. And how did you discover this, first of all? Because when you write it, it's yeah. like, well, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. But you weren't probably just sitting around one day and decided, I'm writing about this. You had to test that somehow. We did. So, you know, I'm a scientist and I always test hypotheses with empirical data. And so, you know, that's why I feel confident saying that in most contexts that your listeners live in, Machiavellianism, force, manipulation, it may get you attention, but it doesn't get you lasting influence. How we tested it is as follows. I'll give you a couple of examples from our lab. And this illustrates a broader literature. We would track groups as they formed and found and would try to ascertain who kind of gets power, how fast does it happen, who has influence, who keeps power over time. You know, we studied fraternities on college campuses. We studied dormitories, sororities, kids in summer camps. We've studied the U.S. Senate, which I'll tell you about. And what you find is within a week of a group forming, we have a pretty shared sense of who we trust and who has power and who's on the margins of power. Really? In that short of a period of time? Yeah. And in fact, there are other studies from business school labs like Cameron Anderson showing, you know, within an hour or two of a group, leaders are starting to emerge. I believe that for sure. Even within conversations of multiple people, you start to say, okay, this is like the dominant guy. Yeah. And then this is, this is the other guy who wants to be dominant, but just really <laughs> just kind of irritating or annoying. <laughs> That's right, right. You know, and we have like these radars right. for those kinds of people. And so when we study these individuals and we sort of then find out like, who are these people who have that art of the charm, right. if you will, who get <laughs> power and they tend to be dynamic. They have a lot of juice. They connect other people. But really interestingly, and most importantly, they're very engaged in the interests of other people. They're going around, patting people on the back. They know where they're coming from. They encourage others. They throw out great ideas. So they're just engaged in others. And you hear about that as a kind of a quality of the CEO that everyone loved was always asking about people. And he remembered things about people. And he was involved in other people's lives in surprising ways that were somehow scalable, right? Like on your birthday probably his secretary, but he calls you and says, hey, I just wanted to wish you a happy birthday. Thanks for working here for 20 years. Those types of things. And then also looking out for people on your team, making yeah. sure that they're not taken advantage of or yep. getting worn down. You hear about that in the military. You hear about yeah. that in yeah. Silicon Valley companies that are successful. And when people don't do that, when they rule by an iron fist, you see they're ranking in, uh, I, I can't remember who tracks this, but like worst companies to work for. Oh, is that right? It's always, you know, <laughs> oh, the CEO made his employees buy their own hotels on this business trip, number two, right? And then other places that you expect to be there, like Radio Shack all the way at the bottom, right? So, yeah. <laughs> but you hear about that. And so if this is constructed by society, constructed by right. civilization, how do the changes evolve? Because yeah. it seems like they're kind of innately human, but it, Maybe the, all of the software is built in or all the hardware is built into us, but the software activates depending on our surroundings or something like, like a Tesla. The autopilot's built in, but unless you pay for it, you can't use it, right? For example, right. humans, have we changed very much physiologically no. since Machiavelli? Probably not. No, you know what really strikes me is when I was writing The Power Paradox, I was like, you know, we made these discoveries and like you nicely alluded to, Jordan, the same kind of ideas like engaging, advance the interests of others also works in the military, highly structured context. And it's those individuals who really engage with others who rise 
in the military ranks. It works in school playgrounds, works in finance firms. So it is this general principle. I think that the way that it evolves and changes is really depending on the particulars of the social context, right? That, you know, I do a lot of consulting down at Facebook and they're engaging in the interests of others has to do with writing good code and building complex teams that do good work. But you're still at the core at a general level, advancing the interests of others is a way to get power. Lennon and McCartney, Jagger and Richards, Watson and Crick, AJ and Johnny. What about the perfect duo when it comes to growing your business? Well, that's you and Shopify. That's right, Johnny. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling your own fire merch or promoting your productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort, thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. What I love about Shopify is no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, as well as millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. And AJ, you don't have to just sell your stuff anymore. With Shopify Collective, you can curate products to sell from the brands that you love, giving your customers more variety and your business more sales. Shopify is your no-excuses business partner. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash charm. Go to shopify.com slash charm now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash charm. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. 
Go to kajabi.com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Facebook is probably a really good example of that. And you probably can't talk about your work there, but I would imagine it has to do with, okay, we want to make this as useful as possible to humanity because the more useful it is, the more people use it. Yeah. Dot, 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 profit, right? Yeah. That should not come as a surprise to anybody. Who's it on should Facebook, not. <laughs> but their mission is to suck us in by giving us valuable things to use, do, and see. Yeah. But in societal groups, what tools do we have that maintain or regulate power? In the yeah. book, you mentioned yeah. reputation and yeah. gossip and things like that. Yeah. So, you know, it's so striking. And very often when we think about problematic forms of power, we kind of demonize the leaders. We, we think about madmen, you know, ruining the world. And that in part is true. You know, Joseph Stalin, Adolf Hitler were no doubt crazy individuals. But we also have to think carefully about social systems and the social context. And you will have really strong forms of power that are good for broad collectives mm -hmm. if you have ways, forms of accountability, right? So the economic collapse, 2008, that Michael Lewis sort of charted, critical to that was all systems of accountability were- Out the window. Out the yeah. window, right? And then they sold whatever they sold. You have to have systems of scrutiny. And this is why journalism is so important. And it's so fascinating. You know, we think about the bias of journalism and the like, but US journalism is pretty robust. It does provide critiques of power. And that form of scrutiny, social psychological studies find, if I know I'm being scrutinized, right, by shareholders or journalism, I won't abuse my power is really just as important. It's so fascinating is art and satire, just forms of public representation that call into question the status quo, right? Sure. That rock and roll, protest music, John Stewart, right? Yeah. yeah. John, okay. John Stewart that, that is, is one of the imagine. most important political analysts. People are begging for him to come back right. today. Yeah. Even though he's tongue in cheek and he's carrying on the great tradition of satire, you know, dates back to Jonathan Swift and before, but because it's a way of making people very aware of the abuses of power. So when you have those systems in place and concerns over your reputation, forms of accountability, satire and scrutiny, we'll have good forms of power. But when those start to be regulated or taken away, then all hell can break loose. And we see this with totalitarian societies yeah. and regimes and things yeah. like that. I've been to countries like North Korea a few times. Really? Yeah. Wow. It's, uh, may interest you slash terrify you or probably both. <laughs> wow. But what you see there is information strictly limited. Yeah. What people are allowed to say strictly limited. Yeah. Even comedy, speaking of. Yeah. It's never about politics. Wow. It's governed by, there's a body that says, this is funny and you, you know, this is stuff you can use or, and things like that. And people are instructed to constantly be on the lookout for things that are not in accordance with yeah. what they want broadcasted. And so this isn't, oh, it evolved in this weird way. I right. mean, this was Stalin's idea was exactly. no freedom of the press. Those guys yeah. can only cause us trouble. We want one narrative. Yeah. And what happened was that one narrative was supposed to advance the brotherly communist, whatever, but yeah. instead it went, well, crap, if there's only one voice and we control it, why are we obeying any rules? And then that <laughs> yeah. went to heck for the next 50 plus years. That's fascinating. And, and derailed everything. And now we have North Korea slash what happened at the Soviet Union. Yeah. People are probably saying, what the heck does this have to do with social science? How can I use this? But if we look at things like our own reputation yeah. and as gossip, as yeah. instruments used to regulate or right. to give us or take away power, you start to be more careful with one, who you gossip about, and two, your own reputation Yeah, quite a bit. I love your riff, by the way, on, on sort of totalitarian regimes. And I'll get to gossip in a second. You know, it was striking. I read a bunch of histories of dictators in thinking about this book and the abuses of power in particular. And 
Jordan, you so nicely illustrated it, but I was astonished. Like Hitler was obsessed with art. You know, he was a sort of a yeah. artist, but he had to control all the art and the shows just like Stalin because he didn't want the critiques of his political status quo. But, you know, most important in our day-to-day lives in terms of how social systems give power to the right people who advance the interests of the group is, as you said, through sort of distributing information about a person's reputation and in particular through gossip. And, you know, I got into a little bit of trouble with this research. We started to do these studies. You know, we studied, for example, a sorority and and sort of privately searched. Speaking of gossip, right? (laughs) You always want to go to the experts. Right to the source, yeah. (laughs) You know, so we study and we're like, who do they gossip about? And it really kind of surprised us, which is that, you know, we interviewed them privately. Hey, who do you kind of tell funny stories about? Kind of gave it a friendly spin on it. And it wasn't what you might stereotypically think. They weren't gossiping about women who drank too much or had, you know, open sexual lives. They were really gossiping about women who are Machiavellian and who are going to take down other people in the group. I thought it would be moral, you know, sex and drugs. Right. But it was really about ethics. Like, is this person kind to others? Do they speak in a civil way? Are they nasty and backstab? Fake. All the gossip. Yeah. All the gossip just zeroed in on those couple of individuals, right? Wow. It constrained their power and influence. It tagged them in saying, like, watch out for this person. Watch out for this person, yeah. Yeah. And then we started to do these studies, and that showed, like, if you take a social group and you allow them to give money to a public good, which is a standard thing that we do when Mm -hmm. we're part of a community, like contribute to the public good, people start to cheat on that. But if you allow the group members to gossip about each other, Ah. they are very good citizens and give a lot. So reputation really helps us avoid the abuses of power. So so gossip and reputation are kind of the plus minus of keeping our behavior in line with the group, the interest of the group. Yeah, exactly. And it can go too far. You know, seventh grade girls gossip too much. And, you know, we have to be worried about that. But in general, it's a very good counterbalance to the abuses of power. Right. So this isn't just a vice because a lot of people, myself included, would think (laughs) gossip and talking about other people, purely a vice, never anything good coming from it. Stop doing it. Bad habit. Get over it. But actually, it's something that we've probably evolved over however many thousands and thousands of years. It's as human. It's as universal part to our human behavior as eating food and having sex. Excellent. we, We all gossip. People who are worried about it can take heart in the fact Thomas Jefferson was a collected acts of political gossip and tracked it during his day because he knew it had important social information in it. So, so on the flip side of power, yeah. we've got powerlessness. Yeah. Tell me about powerlessness. Help us understand why this is a bad thing because for people yeah. who have power, powerlessness is not something you think about ever. Yeah. yeah, you know, it begins when I was writing The Power Paradox. You know, when you write a book, you search for like, why am I writing this book? It begins when I was a kid. And my mom and dad moved. My mom got her PhD at UCLA. We were in Laurel Canyon, which is kind of trendy and cool place. And and then we moved to the foothills of the Sierras. And I was 10 years old. And we moved to the poorest town in the poorest county at the time in California. (laughs) You know, it's something no parent in their right mind would do. What was the idea behind that? Because it was like 1970 and it was the rural experiment. We had an old Victorian and five acres of, you couldn't grow anything on that. And, you know, so interesting. Yeah, I was a 10-year-old kid and it was great. My brother and I ran around like Huck Finn and, you know, Tom Sawyer and we had a pond. We fished. And we live in this on this rural road. 
when I was writing The Power Paradox, I was thinking about that neighborhood. And these people, the men often were out of work. Women didn't work. They're very poor. Schools, suck, you know, were just terrible. Some of my friends ended up in prison. No one went to college. And as I walked down the street, I just started thinking about like each house had somebody in this context of powerlessness who was dying young, you know, oh, wow. literally like next door neighbor at the top of the road was some guy who died pretty early. His son, you know, when he just fell in our backyard, he broke his arm. And when we saw him break, now we know from science that's called child frailty syndrome, which is your bones start decaying oh, wow. prematurely. Go down a couple streets. My best friend's sister had leukemia. His dad got cancer, heart attacks early. People are dying young. And I didn't really think about it until the science of powerlessness started getting off the ground. And the first discovery was that it was twofold. If you don't feel powerful, if you don't have voice at work, if you feel muted in your family, if you feel powerless in a marriage, if you feel powerless or stigmatized in society, you are chronically stressed out biologically, your fight or flight system with cortisol revving up your body as if it's taken on a predator. Oh, wow. It's supercharged. That's finding one. And then we now know if I have 20 or 30 years, 40 years of just feeling like I'm being defending myself. Like drowning. Drowns, yeah, drowning. Your body starts to prematurely die, right? And your right. cells wither. Sure. You have cardiovascular problems. Your veins clog up. Your stomach lining is damaged. Your brain cells start to die. So this science that not a lot of people know about, uh, very relevant today, was telling us, you know, the central health problem in the United States is the people who feel disenfranchised in our society, that they don't have a voice. There's this new finding, very relevant to today's political world. One of the only groups in the industrialized world to die younger than their parents are poor white people in the United States. Really? Yeah, they are dying younger than their parents. Everybody else lives longer because they feel powerless. They feel like this wow. political establishment doesn't hear me. I'm making less money than my dad made. My kids are screwing up. You know, in some sense, it was the real deep reason why I wrote the book. Yikes. I mean, that's surprising data, especially because you don't think powerlessness can kill you. You just think, oh, you know, you yeah. live a lower standard of living than yeah. other people, but you can be fine. You don't need to have right. a three-story exactly. house with a pool. You'll, yeah. you'll survive. Right. Yeah. But actually you won't. Yeah. Not because of the pool, but <laughs> because of the feelings of powerlessness. That's actually really, really terrible. I, all jokes aside, that's yeah. really awful because the fact that powerlessness can cause chronic disease is a new discovery. Yeah, it is. And it's so stunning, Jordan. You know, Nancy Adler at UC San Francisco, one of the first papers on this found, you know, if you rank people on a 10 point scale, this finding that being lower rank hurts your physical health applies at all tiers of the scale. So if I'm a seven and I'm doing pretty well, mm -hmm. but my friends an eight, we go to the same doctor, we eat the same food, we exercise in the same way. He lives longer than I do. Unbelievable. Because he's feeling a little bit more agentic and powerful. So is this just subjective then? Because yeah. Yeah. if it is, well, since it is, how do we start to feel more powerful? Because your life literally depends on it. It's not just your self-esteem or meeting someone of the opposite sex or the same sex to start a family with. It's not attraction-based. This is, hey, you should do this because you'll die early if you don't. Yeah. It's a good reason. Yeah. Well, you know, we're just starting to learn. And one thing we do know, let's take the management context where we know this. We have more better data on this, which is if you're running an organization and some of the people you're in a position of power and you're going to benefit health-wise. And then there are people who 
are potentially at risk because of feeling disengaged or disempowered. We now know that those leaders who have the style that you described earlier of like they check in on people, they listen carefully, they send the notes, they express gratitude, their colleagues that they're managing have better health profiles, right? Just so I think these older ethics of like respect, dignity, as well as letting people have voice and, and speaking up are some of the pathways to agency and power independent of are you a CEO or not? Are right. you famous or not? It's these psychological empowerments that really matter. What if we find ourselves disempowered? What can we do about it ourselves? Is yeah. it about finding a new environment? Hey, look, my job's not only stressing yeah. me out, it's literally killing me. Yeah. As I've learned from this video or this show. Yeah. How do I fix that? I mean, is it about unplugging from what's causing the stress? I do. It's so interesting. You know, I've taught leaders at Berkeley for 20 years, you know, and leaders in science and technology, Facebook and government and the like. People have experienced this dynamic of powerlessness viscerally. We all have. I've had periods where I feel like I'm being dominated by somebody and it keeps me up. My heart feels like it's racing and that's bad for the body. And I think that there are things you can do to take steps towards bullies or dominators. You know, you can call them out. You can make them aware of their reputation. Mm, right. You can gossip sure. about them. You can be formal in saying you can't do this behavior, right? If the guy, most typically a guy, is, <laughs> is incorrigible, you pull out, like right. you said. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all going to give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash charm. Just go to Indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. But we can use reputation and gossip like medicine. Definitely. 
Like, all right, well, if you're going to be that way, I'm going to make sure everybody knows about it. Here's the email I'm sending out. <laughs> right, right. Social media, it's like Yelp for people. This guy, just so you know, and those, jerk face. those are happening. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And yeah. rightfully so some of the time anyway. Yeah. Totally makes sense. It's so funny how you can use these as tools now. Yeah. Now we see the need for it anyway. Yeah, absolutely. What's the relationship between power and status and control and social class and all yeah. those things? Because I feel like you can yeah. kind of lump all those together, but yeah. you might not be totally right. Yeah. Thanks for asking that. And, you know, this is why we do science. When people use language, we would say, hey, that guy's powerful or she's really powerful. And we might be meaning many different things. We might call the new pope powerful, mm-hmm. right? Sure. And call somebody on a baseball field or celebrity powerful. And I think what science is really useful for doing is pulling apart concept. Class is your wealth, education, and the prestige of your work. But it explains about 20% of your power, right? 30%. But that's not that much. So, so you can be very wealthy right. and not do anything in the world. There are plenty of people doing that right around here. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> and we can all think of examples like, sure. that guy's got a ton of money and he hasn't right. done anything. Never worked a day in his life. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And by the way, you cannot have money and change the world profoundly, right? And have sure. a lot of power. And it's all around us. Then you, you pull apart control. And control very often goes with power. But, you know, people, you can have a lot of control over your life and have no power or influence whatsoever. So I always think like, a hermit, right, who lives in a cave in yeah. North Africa, right, has total control and right. no power, right? They're not doing anything. And then most trickily is status. And how we think about status is status is the esteem that you enjoy in other people's eyes. Right. Oh, that's so close to power though, right? It is, but you can separate them, right? So, you know, it's interesting, like there are financiers and you could even think about Donald Trump as having a certain amount of power, but very low status. People think he's right. Oh, that's they, a good point. They have a very negative opinion. Of and you can think about a lot of examples of people who have a lot of power, but aren't respected. And you can think about people who are respected, but don't have a lot of power. So we got to pull them apart. This uh, is like an equalizer on a stereo. There's a lot of little sliders <laughs> here, but they all do different things. And slightly. equalizer is the great metaphor because I think it's so interesting how we do a lot of things in our social behavior and our social communities that give status to people. We give them awards. We act deferentially around them. We treat them with respect. We call them out in a public meeting. And those are all ways in which we give status to people for pro-social things that are the basis of power. Right. So we're thereby regulating, again, the behavior geared towards the interests of the group by conferring status, conferring power on people that behave the way that the collective we want them to do. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. It's stunning how powerful this motive for status and esteem is. You know, when you think about the world of philanthropy, a lot of people give away a lot of money, right? Right, yeah. To, like, be respected. And that's a good thing in many ways. I wondered why people did that for so long. Like, why are rich people then suddenly turning around and organizing all these events and charities and things like that? And I realized, especially if you earn your money in a way that is either not that respectful, (laughs) and this is not a general statement, but I've noticed that some of the people that I know who are wealthy, but have earned their money doing things like online gambling, (laughs) they often turn around and they're like, all right, this is an animal charity. And we got the veteran charity. And then we got this other 
kids charity. And I'm thinking, why are you so obsessed with this? And the reason is they probably feel like crap because everyone goes, that's the guy who, yeah, he's got a nice car, but don't respect him. He made all his money ripping people off with porn sites or online gambling and stuff like that. So they go, but look at all these other nice things I'm doing. And it's like, okay, all right, here's a little bit of respect. It is. And and again, it's this, a lot of people feel cynical about that, but I'm all for forms of altruism and philanthropy that advance the welfare of others, no matter what the motivation. Sure. So. No, it was just something that I'd noticed yeah, now that cool. I float around in some of those circles. I yeah. always wondered, why would you want to give it all away? Or if you want to give it all away, do it quietly. I mean, what's yeah. the difference? No, 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 no. This has to be a friggin' production, okay? <laughs> we need this to make up for 20 years of uh, investment banking, you know, or whatever it was. Yeah. And speaking of altruism, what was competitive altruism? You brought that up earlier. Yeah. That was an interesting... Competitive altruism is exactly this dynamic we've been talking about, Jordan, which is economists started to notice how, you know, from a pure self-interested perspective, you shouldn't really share that much. You shouldn't give away re- your own resources. Yeah. And people do it prolifically. You know, you think about all the billionaires who are giving away 50 to 95% of their wealth. That doesn't make sense from a rational economic perspective. And so they came up with this idea of competitive altruism, which is they say, there is this motive of being esteemed by others. And neuroscience studies show like the people close to me, if they respect me, that's as powerful activating reward circuits in my brain as anything. And so that motive of being respected drives a lot of selfless behavior. You know, over at UC Berkeley, you look at, you know, there's a philanthropy wall and all the names and this happens everywhere. Sure. And they love seeing their names being on a little brick, (laughs) just seven feet above where the eye can see without a ladder. That's you up there. Yeah. Yeah. And this traces back to hunter-gatherer societies where you know, they're actually in most hunter-gatherer cultures. This is before money and before the written word. This is thousands of years ago. They would save food for a long time and they'd have these big festivals. Whoever gave away the most food was kind of the highest status woman or man, hmm. had respect from the peers, a few more sexual opportunities, you know. So status is this powerful yeah. equalizer of power. That makes sense just biologically speaking, right? Look, we want to incentivize yeah. saving. Exactly. So how do we exactly. do that? Exactly. We give you status for doing it. Yeah. Right. And then what it tells us, you know, and it's a part of what we've been talking about, which is that if you want power to work well in your society, you really have to esteem the right things, right? You know, and once you start esteeming other things, people stop being generous and you get right. more rampant abuse. You end up with disincentive or poor incentives, misaligned incentives. Right. Yeah. That's right. What about empathy? Where does that fall into this whole yeah. melting pot? Well, you know, I think it's in a way, you're so right to zero in on it. You know, I think it's the magic ingredient of good power. I was blown away. I was reading Doris Kearns Goodwin, Team of Rivals, and it's about Abraham Lincoln. And Lincoln is rated by most historians as our best president. Right. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Top three or four, usually top one or two with FDR. First of all, he was a very unlikely president in some sense. He was poor, tall, awkward, (laughs) funny clothes. So he was not supposed to win the Republican nomination. And then he navigated through slavery and uh, the most serious moral issue of our history. And a lot of people have sort of thought about, like, what was it about Lincoln that was so, how did he do that? Mm -hmm. And it really was empathy. And I'll, I'll just, quote to you, um, Thurlow Weed, who was this journalist who was actually a strategist for an opponent of Lincoln, was like, what is it about this awkward looking, tall, 
poor guy. Why is he doing so well politically? And he said, Lincoln sees all who come to him. He hears all they have to say, and he reads everything that's written to him. And he was a genius. He didn't have email. That's why. <laughs> yeah. What would the There's digital no link have yeah. been like? It would have, I read almost everything that comes to me. Or you would have had a different kind of email. Right. Account, yeah. You know? yeah. Yeah. But the point being is it's back to what we talked about earlier. Like he just was engaged and knew where people were coming from. And what we find in our studies is, you know, if you're empathetic, if you know where people are coming from, if you keep track of their emotions, you're going to rise in power wherever you go. But regrettably, feeling powerful kind of diminishes your empathic ability. So that's the paradox of power. So this power paradox that diminishes our ability to have empathy and by whatever mechanism, which is detailed in the book, by the way. So not that we don't know it, but it seems less how it happens, more important that it happens in general. Why do we need to transcend that as a society or as a civilization in order to succeed? Yeah, you know, thanks for asking that question. So the studies of the power paradox, the uh, the second part to the equation of like, wow, power leads to these abuses, find that if you give any human being a little bit of power, mm-hmm. they eat more of the food in a social group, they are more likely to shoplift. I um, mean, you know, our research finds people who drive really fancy cars drive through you know, pedestrian zones, you know. Guilty. I don't even have a fancy car. And I know I've still caught myself doing that. Like, well, if you're going to cross slow, I'm just going to go. Now I'm aware of you, man. Right. And yeah. I'll be tracking Gossip, you. Gossip, man. No need. Reputation already tanked. Yeah. But it, it gets worse. You know, they are more likely to have sexual affairs, sexual harassment. I don't think it takes a leap of the imagination to say, if you look at a lot of the spectacularly greedy behavior you see of Enron and people paying themselves tens of millions of dollars. Their workers are making nine bucks an hour. And now we know the health costs of that. I do feel the abuses of power are the central challenge of civilizations. And that's why we have to transcend them. It's so much more severe when you see the data and when you see people dying because of feelings of powerlessness, things that should be maybe not easily corrected, but are definitely solvable with our current level of technology and advances. And uh, one thing I saw that I couldn't believe in the book was that the group most likely to shoplift was wealthy white people. And I was just like, that's wrong. Come on. You know, there's so many funny stereotypes about the wealthy and the poor. And so we published this paper in 2012 and got a lot of buzz of like high power, wealthy people are more likely to behave unethically. They lie in gambling games. They cheat on, you know, in games. They take stuff that was meant for kids. Literally candy that was meant for kids. That's so... It's bad. So then we did this study where we positioned a pedestrian at a California crosswalk and we just tracked like who obeyed the law and stopped and then who blazed through. And for anybody who was driving a poor car, Plymouth Satellite, (laughs) they stopped, all of them. And then 46% of the people driving the Range Rovers and the like cut through and it started getting out there and people were like, whoa, the wealthy are kind of violating the laws. Uh, And this is replicated in a lot of places. We started getting all these emails of people. And one came from this guy who's like, you're not going to believe this. There's a team of uh, medical doctors and they were interested in shoplifting. Shoplifting costs the U.S. economy 10 to $15 billion. Wow, that's so much. It's a lot. That's crazy. It's ridiculous. They did a nationally representative sample. So it is like a very... Exhaustive, right? This isn't just like people in San Francisco (laughs) who are wealthy and white steal more. Yeah, (laughs) this is the real thing. And you look at the tables and there it is, man. Like 
wealthy white people are more likely to shoplift. I was blown away. That is mind blowing. And then you add that to like, but if you're an African American young guy going into a store, you are going to get checked out. Everyone will assume you are going <laughs> yeah. to. Uh, I mean, not that you are going to, but the the whole of society would more likely assume that you would be a thief versus Winona Ryder, who actually was a thief, <laughs> right? A good looking. That's yes, yeah. right. That's crazy. So <laughs> it is. That it is, is crazy. Unbelievable. That is unbelievable. But it, it makes sense in the context of what we've learned yeah. today, for yeah. sure. Yeah, and you know, I think that's part of the. I think the encouraging message of the power paradox, you know, and you're getting at it by transcending these problematic tendencies, which is we're all vulnerable to this, you know. And I think all of your listeners, they will have a lot of times in their life where they feel like, yeah, I'm on the top of my game. Look at me. I'm with my friends, or I've just done well at work. And that's when we're most vulnerable, right, to mm-hmm. offending somebody or treating somebody with disrespect or acting unethically. So I think it's a, it's just an important reminder. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you want to make sure you bring home for us? You've nailed it. You've covered the entire 20 years of my career. Oh, well, good. In, <laughs> in approximately 40 minutes, I think. I haven't checked the clock, but thank you so much. Oh, so it's been a pleasure, George. What a great conversation. Interesting stuff. I really had no idea that power was related to lifespan. A lot of surprises in this one as well. And I do think that, yes, of course, we've all heard absolute power corrupts absolutely, but it's not really a problem that you think about affecting the entire society or infecting your psyche in a way that's unhealthy for everyone involved. So a lot here to think about, a lot here to apply. And if you enjoyed this one, don't forget you can thank Dacker on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes as well as The Power Paradox, his book. You can tap our album art in most mobile podcast players to see the cheat sheet for this episode. We'll link to the show notes right on your phone. I'm also on Twitter, at The Art of Charm. I post a lot of articles and insights, and you can engage with me there really easily, at The Art of Charm on Twitter. Bootcamp and Art of Charm live program details on the website at bootcamp.theartofcharm.com. Note the two dots, the double dots. We're sold out a few months in advance, so if you're thinking about it a little bit, it's in the back of your brain somewhere, get in touch ASAP. We'll get some info right to you. You can plan ahead, get the ball rolling. And I also want to encourage you to join us in our social capital challenge at theartofcharm.com slash challenge, or if you're in the States, text CHARMED to 33444. It's all about improving your connection skills, your networking skills, and inspiring other people to develop relationships with you, both personally and professionally. I'll also send you that fundamentals toolbox I mentioned earlier in the show, as well as some videos with drills and exercises to help you move forward. It'll make you a better networker, it'll make you a better connector, and a better thinker. So check it out, theartofcharm.com slash challenge, or text CHARMED for those of you sitting in your car right now in the U.S. to 33444. This episode of the Art of Charm podcast was produced by Jason DeFilippo. Jason Sanderson is our audio engineer and editor. Show notes on the website are by Robert Fogarty, and I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Go ahead, tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. So stay charming and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and more at theartofcharmpodcast.com.